You're listening to the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network. This is Drive Time with Travis Wingfield. Back to throw Tua, looking. Flips it down the wide open! <laughs> Touchdown, Tyreek Hill! Unbelievable! Just flew by him for a second time. Tua knew where he was going right away. How the hit is that, though, man? I really hope you soon jump on his bandwagon. Waddle, waddle. To a shotgun, back to throw, looking, steps up, fires, touchdown. Okay. Okay. It's Waddle. His sixth touchdown Six pass touchdown of the game. day. Drive time with Travis Wingfield begins now. Let me check your pulse if you're not fired up. What is up, Dolphins, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and on today's show, we did five things all year, every single Wednesday. Why not close up the end of season week here on the podcast with five things I think the 2020 season taught us with an eye towards what's ahead for 2023, plus we'll go ahead and break down the top 10 touchdowns for your Miami Dolphins of 2022 from the Baptist Health Studios inside the Baptist Health Training Complex. This is the Drive Time. That's another Miami Dolphins. Some late news broke across my desk after the podcast was recorded, so a late addition here to give you the updates on the latest in Miami Dolphins land. The Dolphins have... Made some changes to the coaching staff, relieving Josh Boyer, Dolphins defensive coordinator, of his duties. Head coach Mike McDaniel said, I am grateful for Josh's contributions this year and throughout his tenure with the Dolphins. The defense made strides through the season, so coming to this decision was not easy. But ultimately, I feel it's in the best long-term interest of the Miami Dolphins and the continued growth of our players and team. End quote there from Mike McDaniel. Miami also relieved safeties coach Stephen Gregory, outside linebackers coach Ty McKenzie, and assistant linebackers coach Steve Ferentz. Uh, all were relieved of their duties on Thursday afternoon. Let's go ahead and get to the rest of the podcast. Coming down the pike on the pod the next few weeks is a look back at the 2022 season, an evaluation of each position group, and sort of a primer of the incumbents before we get to the roster building phase of the offseason. I know a lot of you guys want to hear about free agents and drafts of what could possibly happen, and we'll get to that. But with that, as we tend to do here with certain landmarks, I thought now was an appropriate time to take a big picture glance at what the 2022 season taught us about our team heading forward. And with that, the five things, starting with number one, and this is chief among all of them. We touched on this at every single tentpole landmark of the season, establishing a core roster that we haven't seen in some time in Miami. I tweeted my final recap podcast on Sunday night with the tagline, that this is one of my favorite seasons since 2008. And you got to win the division before I put a season on top of that year and the fun run that ended with a must-win victory in the building of the New York Jets to end their season. Now, had we done the same to Buffalo to end theirs, then this one would have surpassed that. But alas. But the reason it is up there, even after losing six of the final seven and ending with a 9-9 nine and nine record that I think was a disappointment to really all of us, is two things that you saw this year. Process and talent. The process on offense of building a track team on the perimeter to maximize the strengths of a quarterback who excels with processing, manipulation, timing, and accuracy, instituting an offensive explosion style of play 
where you harbor a bunch of already athletic linemen and you import two of the very best in the league in that regard in Teron Armstead and Connor Williams. Both guys had Pro Bowl years. Retaining continuity on a defense that posted excellent numbers with a lot of the same personnel and scheme from the previous two years and injuries and attrition aside, I think you saw all of those things bubble up at their peak to their potential at various points of the season. The next step, obviously, is consistency. And with that, you know, I mentioned the 2018. It's not even close, man. Like, go back and look at the 2018 on Wikipedia or Pro Football Reference, however you want to find your roster. What the Dolphins brought back in 2009 and that 0-3 start that year and Chad Henney replacing Chad Pennington absolutely pales in comparison to the talent you have. The last time it was even close was 2003, and I would still say better now. We'll see what happens with our own free agents. I'm sure we'll bring back a handful of those guys that wind up on this list as well. But as far as players under contract, making up a core that you can really build around, and you know those that have followed me since the Locked On Dolphins days, you guys remember the whiteboard, right? I'm actually working on doing the whiteboard over again and getting it back posted uh, to kind of evaluate the offseason. The color coding I did with that thing was to determine how a player is viewed in terms of their standing at their position. Blue players were the elites, one of the top players at their position. Green equals a plus starter, you know, Pro Bowl potential. Think like, I I would say like Rob Hunt is a good example of that. Uh, Orange is a valuable starter within range of replacement level, whether it's a little bit above or below or just right at that average level. Then purple is your rotational piece, like an Elijah Campbell who comes into sub packages. And usually there's carryover for that player with the next category of special teams, which is my black distinction. And then red was your typical 90-man roster distinctions for players who essentially had a long shot to make the roster or players in the 53 that I thought were not long for that roster or really for any roster in the NFL. So you want a roster full of blue and green players. And here's what I have in those categories. At quarterback, Tua Tungavailoa, I have him as a blue player because the production across the board, you know, I think the injury stuff maybe has shrouded some minds out there in terms of how well this guy played this year. Or maybe it was the two games out in California that made you feel this way or the fourth quarter in Green Bay. And yeah, you want to clean those things up. 24-year-old players tend to have stretches of play where they're not perfect. It happens. But I mean, (laughs) what else constitutes a blue player than this? He was top of the league in accuracy throwing deep passes. And he had more deep passes than Joe Burrow. So I don't want to hear about sample size. A lot of y'all said he couldn't do that. Number one in the NFL. He was second in the NFL with his passer rating against pressure. A lot of y'all said he couldn't do that. He was the top-rated quarterback on third and long plays this year. He was top-rated quarterback in the red zone. Like, what in the f*** are we doing if we're worried about the production of this player? I'll give you the medical tag. I have that on his name on the board. Absolutely something you have to consider and put into the evaluation. But if you remove the medical tag, he's an elite player. He's a blue player, a blue quarterback. He was a top five QB all year. Even with the slumps, he was still top five. Tyreek Hill, obviously a blue player. I don't think I have to explain that one. So was Jalen Waddell. You don't finish top 10 in the NFL in receiving if you're not one of the best players at that position. And doing that with the low amount of targets compared to the other guys in the top 10, this guy is one of the best receivers in the NFL. Teron Armstead's a blue player. One of the best left tackles in the NFL. He also carries a medical tag. Connor Williams is a top three or four center for my money, so he also gets a blue tag. That is one, two, three, four, five players on your offense with blue chip tags. Two years ago, we had zero, and that was that way for a long, long time. Like, this team has not had blue chip talent on offense for a long time. They've got five now in my book. 
And Robert Hunt's a green player. He is very, very close to inching towards blue, but I want to give him one more year of playing at that level. I, I anticipate a Christian Wilkins third and fourth year type of jump for him, so I'm sure he'll be there in no time. On defense, Jalen Phillips is a blue player. Go fight a wall about it. He was one of the top producing edge rushers in the NFL. He played the run as well as anybody else. The numbers are there. The tape is there. The fact that he's in his second season is there. Like it's, he's looking like a great player. Bradley Chubb has been a blue player for a long time. I put him as a green player, a plus starter pro bowler type, just because the production wasn't as good in Miami as it was Denver. I think there are mitigating circumstances there that contribute to that usage um, and, you know, adapting to a new defensive system for him. So he's green. I keep Emmanuel Ogba in that same territory. I mentioned that Phillips' 77 quarterback pressures were the most by a Miami Dolphin since 2012 and Cameron Wake when he had 86. Well, the... Other top five pressure seasons among Dolphins pass rushers were Manuel Ogba in 2020 and 2021. He had 66 and 63, I think, in those two years. So he's still a really good player. He just got injured. We kind of forget about a player when they get injured sometimes. Christian Wilkins, absolutely a blue player. No question about that. Blue player, one of the best years, one of the best defensive tackles. His pass rush is not like Jeffrey Simmons, you know, level production, but man, he, he makes plays every single game and to play 90% of the snaps in certain games and really all year long, 80 plus percent. That is a blue player through and through. I have Zach Sealer as a green player. I have Xavier Howard as a green player at this stage of his career. I have Cater Kohu as one of the plus starters at the slot cornerback position. And Javon Holland's the one that I'm struggling with the most between going blue and green. I'm going to keep him green on the conservative side just because, you know, I think we didn't get a chance to see much of his playmaking this year. And again, a lot of that has to do with um, injuries and system and putting him in positions to, to really protect opposed to make plays. Um, but he is really really on the heels of a blue distinction. And then Brandon Jones also gets a green distinction. So I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, blue, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, green, 15 players. That is really, really dang good. And think about the fact that one, two, three of these guys, four, four of them were out for long periods of time. Another Xavier Howard missed a couple of games some very key important players missing games. And I, I know that's part of the process here, but um, that is a great, great way to start a great foundation for your team. And man, they have an opportunity here to add to that and get even better. And, and we'll talk about how they can grow in other ways, like our takeaway number two here. And that is year two growth that you can expect from a team instituting a new system, a new coaching staff, some new personnel, and, and really having so much fresh and new. And frankly, on offense, it was all new. Like, I mean, the, Players were new, the scheme was new, the coach was new, and that was the better side of the football this year. But in terms of year two growth, it feels like I've talked about this every season since I've been doing podcasts and writing, you know, professionally, not just doing it for a hobby. And it's because I have. In 2016, the first year that I was doing the podcast, uh, to 2017, the Dolphins did have the same offensive coordinator. That was the last time in Clyde Christensen, but also the quarterback got injured in training camp that year. So they brought in Jay Cutler, a new quarterback. So you didn't have the same quarterback offensive coordinator uh, that year, which Adam Gase, you know, was also kind of the OC, but you get what we're saying here. Then 2018, Dow Loggins, that's another new one for, for Ryan Tannehill to return to. In 2019, Chad O'Shea, 2020, Chan Gailey, 2021, Godsey and Studisville, and now 2022 with McDaniel and Frank Smith which will be back in 2023. And that preamble is to lead into the thing I've mentioned each year. Bruce Arians talking about how it takes about eight games, he thinks, to get an offensive system dialed in. 
Peyton Manning talked about on Peyton Eli this year that he thinks it happened somewhere in the middle of year number two when he felt like a system became something you knew like the back of your hand. And more recently, Jeff Darlington, big big fan of uh, his work and friend of the show here, recently went on Kranz's Corner. And for the non-local Dolphins fan, Kranz is a longtime radio personality here in the area and all around great dude. But he had Jeff on his show earlier this week. And Jeff talked about McDaniel, lessons that are learned only through growing pains and the potential of said growth in year two under this coaching system. What he said was the Dolphins are knocking on the door when it comes to Mike McDaniel. That was his first year and a system like McDaniel's or Shanahan out in San Francisco, it requires some time both in instituting the system and also more off seasons to keep adding guys that fit the system. Makes perfect sense, right? They've got a lot to build upon. I think what we saw this year was the blueprint, not a conclusive outcome of what this team can be. That was my favorite uh, part of it was the closer there. That blueprint comment that I hearken back to, the one that makes me rubberneck a bit. And he also mentioned like in in you know in lieu of the comments about like coaching staff changes or fans wanting certain people out, and he said that the idea of McDaniel, you know, being out after one year was crazy. And if you just want to remove anybody that goes through growing pains like clock management operation, the things that take some time to, you know, learn and get down pat that you're never going to hit the next big thing because everyone from Kyle Shanahan to Sean McVay, all these next big things in terms of offensive masterminds had to endure that same thing because the only way you can really, you know, take it on and improve it is to go through it and do it. So you can go on to the next guy, the next genius offensive mind, but he's going to have the same exact issues early on uh, that I think a lot of fans were upset by late in the year. But, you know, I, I just going back to the thing that made me rubberneck, the blueprint comment, I've heard that same sentiment, not just from people I know in the media sphere, but people that I know that I classify personally as analysts of the game, the difficulty of this, this particular system and making it seem like second nature. And I think about scoring 30 points in four straight games while you're still making all that happen. To me, that's a lot of reason for optimism. And I asked McDaniel about this at the end of season press conference on Monday, and he described the offensive line play as having to kind of retrain everything you've learned previously in football. And I think that could probably speak to some of the waves we saw this year, especially in the running game. The offensive line was up and down all year. We had some games where it looked like the 2002 offensive line creating some huge lanes and other games where it was a struggle, a slog fest. And you have to imagine another year, another offseason to not just work on the fundamentals of that style, but to have a full year of tape of yourself, not other players to evaluate. I have to imagine that'll pay big dividends. And how about some tangible information, not just my opinion? Going from year one to year two of McDaniel's recent stops in places he was at for two or more years, uh, we kickstarted back at Washington in 2011 to 2012. From 16th, their first year in offense, to fifth. He was in Cleveland for one year in 2014, which was a big jump for that Browns team that year, by the way. Atlanta from 2015, their first year, seventh in offense, to 2016, second in offense. In San Francisco, 2017, they were 12th and went back to 16th in their second year. And that's the one regression, but as we'll discuss later, context is king of all things, right? Because in 2018, that was the year they traded for Jimmy Garoppolo, and he went 5-0 and as a starter. And what did they do in his second year of the system in 2019? Oh, just the number four offense and a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl. No big deal. Something I've taught myself in this little study doing this just now, that you are watching me learn live. Well, not really, because I wrote it down and I learned it when I was writing it down. They always started really well because look at the year before they arrived, Shanahan and McDaniel. The 2010 Washington team was 25th in offense, up to 16th, up to 5th by year two. 
the 2014 Falcons were 12th, up to 7th, up to 2nd, year 1, year 2. And the 2016 Niners before their arrival in the 12th place offensive finish, 31st in the NFL. This system has a way of getting better the longer people are in it. Let's go ahead and take our first break right there and come back with things, I think, three through five. That's next on the Drive Time Podcast. Your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. Five off-season items that have me looking forward to 2023 based upon what we learned in 2022. Uh, things number one was the young core and the roster in general to build around. Thing number two was the... I guess, tangible growth that you can point to uh, from this coaching staff or this head coach's previous stops in this particular offensive system. And number three is that they were competitive in every game. And this is a little bit repetitive from things I've talked about earlier, so I apologize for that, but I think it's really important. I built these five things out in a way that I I think makes the most sense. Um, But I mentioned this at various stages of the season. And of course, that wild card game was starting to look like it was going to kill this stat at 17-0 and maybe even 34-24, but it didn't. Miami was within, within one score in the fourth quarter of all 18 games they played this season. The last time that happened, not the 2002 team, not the 2000 playoff winning team, not the 1994 team, not the 1992 juggernaut that went to the AFC Championship game, not the 1985 team that beat the undefeated Chicago Bears. It was the 1984 Super Bowl team who lost just two games all year until the Super Bowl. And that was the last, you know, that game was different. I referenced the gap closing that occurred against Buffalo this year, and you can't just transplant plant teams year to year. I get that, but from 117 to 37 was the three-game score cumulatively before this year, and this year, 85 to 81. That is massive, man. What a massive, massive turnaround. And in every year, the 2001 Tampa game, the Titans game, both Bills games. In 2020, the Bills game, the way the Chiefs game started down by 20 points despite being plus four in the takeaway department. 2019, 2018, 17, that Monday night game in Carolina that year. This is the first time in some time when Miami went up against some of the contenders and deep advancing teams and was competitive to the point of a favorable win probability in the fourth quarter of just about all those games. And all but two of those games, their win probability was better than their opponent in the fourth quarter. And at worst, it was never below 40%. They went four and five against winning teams and you want to see that improve but man this was the toughest schedule they faced in some time the context it was the third toughest schedule in the NFL with a 537 opponent winning percentage and going back to 2018 through 2021 here's their record against winning teams last year three and six 2020 one and four 2019 two and four how is 2020 better than 20 or 2019 better than 2020 that's crazy and then 2018 was three and six and that includes the Miami Miracle so nine and twenty in 2022, a 444 winning percentage compared to what's 9 out of 29. I didn't do the math on the script here. 310 winning percentage. So you improved it by over 130 points. You know, Next year, hopefully we can flip that in the other direction to the 556 where you're 5 and 4. And we'll get into this in a later takeaway, but in two of the losses, our starting quarterback didn't finish the game. That's all it takes right there to potentially flip that script. Thing number four are the quickest routes to making this happen. Two things to improve. And the idea here is, in talking about all those close games and staying competitive, how you can flip those points by just a couple in our favor and come away with an extra win or two. And like on top of adding players and, and you know offseason acquisitions, right? That's the obvious one. But just better in-game operation to maximize your ability 
to win those games. We mentioned the third and short rankings earlier this season in comparison to third and medium or third and long. They were the best at the latter, which is the hard part. Like, look at two of splits in the category where scouts, you know, start their quarterback evaluations. Third and six plus, clear and obvious passing situations. Defense knows you have to throw the ball and you still can convert it. Now, those numbers dropped a little bit over the last few games. They were still number two in third and medium this year, finished 15th and third and long. Again, without two of that, that number dipped big time. But short yardage, they were 32nd in the NFL. Now, how do you correct that? That's for another podcast and really for the coaches to figure out. But I have to imagine it's going to be one of those areas of emphasis that McDaniel talked about in his Monday press conference. And then, of course, penalties. The 118 flags assessed against Miami was tied for most in the NFL, though it is 18 games compared to Arizona 17, who also had the same number of flags. But 118 penalties assessed for the 915 yards was the sixth most yards and penalties against Miami. We heard Coach talk about things that he can you know, help improve upon to ultimately help the team improve the operation, the pre-snap stuff. I'm not going to highlight each one of those, but man, there were plenty of drives. And in games where you lost, where the flags was the difference in no points or three points, or three points and seven points, and in games where you lost by that total. Hell, Coach alluded to the Vikings drive when talking about Skyler a few weeks ago, I've never seen anything like that. So the high volume of penalties, you know, but mostly the key ones to wipe out big plays, that and improved short yardage are two areas where you can make improvements there. You can clean up a lot of that hidden yardage and flip the score in some of those games we just talked about. Very important stuff there as well. And lastly, another one here is just kicking field goals. I mean, the Dolphins got beat on three buzzer beaters last year in 2021. And in each of those games, Miami missed a field goal. Same situation this year. Most of Sanders' misses came in, in losses, and we lost games by close differentials. So making field goals, reducing penalties, and converting on third and short are three, I think, really fundamental, easy ways to get back into more wins. And the fifth thing is the insane injury attrition this team went through this, this season. Chris Greer talked about it, his final uh, answer at the press conference on Monday uh, he said, you know, someone asked, is 9-9 a fair reflection of the season? He said, I began with Bill Parcells, who says you are what you are. Uh, he said, we had a year, we haven't had injuries like this since probably 2017. Maybe the last time we were ravaged by injuries this way. We finished where we were, but we got to the playoffs and had a chance to win a game versus one of the best teams in football. That is what it is. Yeah, I mean, so every five years, I guess, so 2027, we have to just prepare for that as being one of the worst years injury-wise. It sucks that it happened this year, but it did. And here's what I wanted to get to. And, you know, McDaniel even alluded to, to this in a point he made before the Jets game when somebody asked him, will Skylar Thompson start the game on Sunday? He said, yes, I believe he will, unless there's another classic Dolphins weekly setback. Like, that's kind of how we felt about it, right? And look, injuries, officiating, close games, you're going to have 32 fan bases that will point to these things as reasons their team didn't win two or three more games, make the playoffs, yada, 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 right? It happens every year. And honestly, a younger Travis would be blaming officiating errors quite often. And I still subscribe to the fact that it's impossible for humans to get this stuff right. Let's put replay assist in, man. Baseball's doing it. They're going to robot umpires. Do it in the NFL. Those things create adversity that gives each team their own unique challenge and opportunity to overcome. Like, yeah, that sucks, but okay, here, do, how do we overcome that? How do we overcome the fourth and six now instead of fourth and one? And that wasn't an officiating error. The spots before that definitely were. And usually when we do a long disclaimer like that on the show here, we then say the but, and then we go against what we just said, right? And this is for me more of a plea to a larger complaint I have in terms of how we, the masses, assess and evaluate this game that we all love, football. I think steadfast, hard lines are a foolish endeavor in this game. 
uh, one of my buddies on Twitter, love him to death, but I saw, do the Dolphins make the playoffs or what's, what's the bottom line must do next year, make the playoffs, win a game, whatever is your, your bottom line thing using mandates and not using the term, no excuses is ridiculous. Excuses are context and context helps inform future decisions. And the context of the 2022 Dolphins is that they've had just horrific injury luck. Not that it was necessarily more than any other team on a volume standpoint, but there are different levels to injury luck. The 2021 Ravens, for instance, that was probably the most unique situation I'd ever seen personally. The volume of key players they lost was astounding. I think it was 17 of their starters missed like more than one game that year. And they didn't make the playoffs after starting like eight and three. Just like, and when it hits that level of volume, you wind up with my second and I think most important point here, injuries that occur at one position group. We saw the offensive line, the cornerback position, and quarterback position just take on proverbial water in a way that is so rare around the NFL. Let's look at it. Quarterbacks, three different starters. Not many teams can say that. QB1 started 13 games, QB2 started two, and QB3 started three, the playoff game as well. From a snap count standpoint, 705 for Tua, 141 for Teddy, and 280 for Skyler. That includes 69 playoff snaps. Nice. And that's not to mention the fact that in five of the games, we had multiple quarterbacks take snaps. Five out of 17 games, or 18 games. That's tough, man, especially with how we've heard Coach talk about the importance of getting those practice reps each week for the starting quarterback. Like, you have to, you know, when you change quarterbacks mid-game, it makes it difficult. Offensive tackle. We had seven players take snaps at tackle this year. And for those that are counting, you get two tackles per game. Uh, Brandon Shell played 762 snaps. He was an in-season acquisition and a very solid one at that, but it speaks to the need to call upon a street free agent to account for the injuries you've got. He led the way. 762 snaps led the offensive line or offensive tackle at 73%. Armstead was next, 688 snaps, that's 65%. Greg Little played half the snaps this year, 528. Austin Jackson played just 84. That was your opening day right tackle. And Chris Greer mentioned that Austin was a player the staff was all fired up about this last summer. Kendall Lamb, another in-season acquisition. He played 32 snaps and started a game for you. And Larnell Coleman, remember him? He played one snap. And Robert Hunt finished the season playing a game and a half at right tackle. Cornerback, obviously losing a player like Byron Jones for the entire year is terrible. It was a killer for this defense, in my opinion. And even in camp, when Trill Williams was lost for the year, I think your first thought was, well, Byron will be back. It's a huge bummer, but at least we're deep at the position, right? But then the injuries just kept coming. Nick Needham goes down after 297 snaps. It's a four-year starter here that you lost a quarter of the way into the season. Xavier Howard missed two games, and you felt that absence big time in those Jets and Patriots losses. I think you probably win those games if you have X. He played 85% of the snaps this year. Keon Crossan played 33%. Noah Egbenogany, 21%. Justin Bethel gave you 123 snaps. He's never played that many in a season, ever. And with how versatile the secondary is, losing a player like Brandon Jones after 350 snaps or 30% of your snaps changes a lot of the flexibility you had back there. And one step further, if you look at spot racks, uh, cap allocation per position, the positions that the NFL value the most in terms of money spent are quarterback, offensive line, and in particular, offensive tackle, edge, cornerback, and wide receiver. So Miami was hit extremely hard at three of the five most valuable positions in the NFL, not to mention the nicks and bruises that brought Tyreek and Jalen in and out of games and quite frankly had games where they just weren't the same throughout the course of the season. Brutal. You have to think, you know, by law of averages, it should be better next year. One of the things out of your control, but I think it's a big reason why the season began with that 99 record opposed to what it looks like when you were healthier. 
So there you go. Those are my five things. I, I feel better about it. I'm actually really encouraged and enthused about this team going into the offseason. I didn't know I was going to get here after a couple of those late season losses, but the way it ended, uh, the context, the kind of stepping back and removing emotion from it, I feel really good about the direction of this football team. Let's go ahead and come back on the other side and do uh, season-long snap counts, get you that list. We'll do the divisional round picks, and we'll also pick out the top 10 touchdowns from this season and break down each one of those plays. That's next. Drive Time Podcast, your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. Oh yeah, it's a Friday ahead of what has always, in my opinion, been the best weekend in the football calendar. One of these years we're going to play on this weekend. It's been 20-something years now uh, since the Dolphins played on divisional round weekend. I have faith it's going to happen sooner than later. I think potential back-to-back playoff years and the playoff victory drought and the divisional round drought. I have a feeling all of that's coming to an end here very, very soon. But hopefully for the last time in a long time, we are picking other teams' games here in the divisional round. Before we get to the snap counts and top 10 touchdowns of 2022, going to be a long episode today. Hope you're all strapped in. Let's go ahead and pick the divisional round games. We missed, I missed, I don't know why I say we, I missed the Giants and Vikings game. So 5-1 and one on Wild Card Weekend. Feel pretty good about that. That did throw my NFC bracket out of whack a little bit, but it's easy to correct because I still had the same teams winning that are in this round anyway. So rather than San Francisco over Minnesota and Philly over Dallas, I now have San Francisco over Dallas and Philly over the Giants. Chalky this week. Eagles, Niners, give me the Chiefs over the Jags and give me the Bills over the Bengals, uh, which I think makes for the best AFC championship game and really the best NFC championship game. Um, But go Chiefs and go Niners. Those are the teams I'm pulling for in either conference at the time being. Let's talk about snap counts in 2022 and what we can learn from those at the quarterback position. We talked about it already. 700 for Tua, 280 for Skyler, 141 for Teddy. Obviously, you want that number to be one player, at worst two players. And if that second player is over 100 snaps, that's not great either. So hopefully next year, over 1,000 snaps for Tua, that's the aim. If we get 1,000 snaps of Tua, what I mentioned with the divisional round playoffs and all that stuff, that'll happen. 1,000 snaps for Tua, divisional round playoffs, they go hand in hand. At running back, uh, Edmonds was traded, so 186 for him. But Raheem Mostert got 52% of the workload. I think that's a great number for him. We'll see if he is back with the club next year. I'm hoping that he is. I think he's a good fit here, a good player, a good leader, all that fun stuff. And the explosive running game element that really pairs well with the Dolphins passing game is is critical. And I think his ability to hit big plays is paramount. Um, So 52% of the snaps for him. You want to find, I guess, the other 50%. Jeff Wilson got a quarter of those. Of course, that's half the season as the number 1B, 1A back to Raheem Mostert. Again, he's a free agent as well. So is Ahmed. So is Gaskin. Ahmed played 3% and Gaskin played a little more than 3%. Uh, over Savant Ahmed this year. And Alec Ingold played about 40% of the snaps as the fullback. I think those are numbers that you can expect going forward, regardless of who the running backs are here. I think a 50-50 split with some occasional third back reps and a fullback on the field, 40 to 50% of the snaps, is a pretty good indication of what this offense wants to be. At receiver, this has to be kind of manufactured this way because we saw them come off the field together a bunch. Waddle and Hill both played right at 75%, like give or take a couple fractional points there, but 800 
300 snaps for Tyreek, 785 for Jalen, and then Sherfield. I think that was a big surprise this year. Everyone expected Cedric Wilson to be the number three receiver. If not him, maybe Eric Ezukama after his great training camp and preseason. But it's Sherfield who winds up getting 58% of the snaps. And that's kind of indicative of what you can expect going forward. Top two guys play a lot of the snaps, three out of every four. Your number three guy plays less than two thirds. And then there's a big drop off after that because this offense utilizes tight end play so frequently. After Trent Sherfield's 58% workload, uh, Cedric Wilson was next with 22%. We got 15% from River Craycraft, 159 snaps. And then Braylon Sanders, 34 snaps. Ezukama, 10 snaps. Freddie Swain, 7 snaps. So the construction of your receiver room, you've got the bulk of it already. I would expect Sherfield to be a bit of a priority in terms of free agency. We'll see what happens there. And then Ezukama kind of stepping up, I think, is, is kind of how you look at this receiver's room that I would expect minimal changes to. We'll see. Uh, what I expect massive changes to is a tight end room. And we saw the split go Durham-Smythe, 52%. Mike Kosicki, 45%. Um, we just got to get better here. Uh, Hunter Long, 9%. And then Seathan Carter had one snap on offense this year. At the tackle position, we talked about it already. Seven guys took snaps, but Shell was the leader. And then Teron Armstead next at 65%. Hopefully that number goes up next year, but I'm still taking 65% of elite left tackle play over 100% of not good left tackle play. I'll take that any day of the week. Uh, Greg Little played half the snaps this year. Can't imagine that happens again this year. And Austin Jackson, 84 snaps. Kendall Lamb, 32 snaps. Uh, Just a, a lot of attrition at that tackle position. There was not as much attrition at the guard position. Robert Hunt played 1,056 snaps. That was all but a couple. Connor Williams played all 1,057 snaps on offense uh, at center. And then Robert Jones played about half of your snaps, 43%. And of course, Liam Eichenberg was in there as well, 60%. That was your split there at the left guard position between he and Robert Jones. Never saw Dieter play a game this year. On the defensive side, just talking about Wilkins and Sealer, man, 83% snaps for Wilkins, 77% for Sealer. That is insane. Uh, otherwise, otherwise, at the defensive tackle position, where's John Jenkins at? He played 22%. I think that's a spot you can look to maybe, you know, uh, look for late round draft prospects or lower free agent bargain bin type of players. John Jenkins, a free agent, you're going to need more uh you're going to need more snaps at the position, so replacing him could be a key if you don't bring him back. We'll see what happens there. Raekwon Davis played half the snaps, 51%, and you got some work from Zimmer, uh, Ben Stilley, and Josiah Bronson as well. At the edge position, Ogba only gave you 29% after the injury, of course. He was so reliable in playing 70-80% of the snaps the last couple of years. Uh, Jalen Phillips played 74%. That's probably going to go up next year. Bradley Chubb played 30% of your snaps in half the season, so 60% prorated for a full year. That'll go up big next year as well. Uh, what else we got off the edge? Ingram played 45%. He, man, he was so good this year. Hope we see more of him. 30% from Van Ginkle. Uh, that could be interesting to see what happens with his contract this offseason because he's been a good player for here, for four years here, but deep edge position for Miami. At the off-ball linebacker position, Jerome Baker played 89% of the snaps. Only defender in that part of the field, over 1,000. Javon Hall and the other one in general, over 1,000 on defense. Um, let's see, Duke Riley was at 33%. I like Duke Riley's game. Alandon Roberts gave you 60%. And that was pretty much it. Egwavon gave you 34 snaps and Tyndall gave you nine on the year. In the secondary, X played 86% of the snaps. So he fought through, you know, those growing injuries, but he was out there for the majority of the time. And then after that, Keon Crossan was the next highest snap count corner. That's that's where the issue comes in terms of, you know, what I talked about with the uh, 
the five things is like Keon Crossan was a special teams ace and he wound up being your second most played cornerback this year. That's that's pretty wild. Nick Needham gave you 297 snaps. That was only a quarter of the total snaps. Igbenogany was right there too, 20% of the workload. Of course, Byron Jones never saw the field this year. And then what else we got in the safety position? Uh, Javon Holland led the way. He was out there for 99% of the snaps this year. Oh, I missed Cater Kohu. Sorry about that. He was number two. Crossing was three. Cater Kohu, 900 snaps. For some reason, he's in the bottom of this list below the safeties. I don't know why that's the case, but he gave you uh, 79% of the snaps this year. Brandon Jones, just 30% with the injury. Eric Rowe, 50%. That's, I wouldn't mind seeing Eric Rowe come back as a third safety. We'll see what happens in that position group um, in free agency this year. But he's he was pretty productive as that third safety when you had Jones and Holland out there. And then McKinley, 22%. Justin Bethel, 10%. Uh, what else? Elijah Campbell, 7%. Uh, Fedulum, 3%. So, yeah, pretty pretty instructive there. You have some holes you have to fill with free agency coming up. But we'll see how that works, all things told. Let's go ahead now and spin it forward to the team YouTube channel. I'm going to break down the plays we selected for our top 10 touchdowns this year. And it starts with number 10, Trent Sherfield scores early in San Francisco. First and 10, Tua out of the shotgun. Puts Tyreek in motion. Play action fake over the middle. He's got wide open. Sherfield at the 50, at the 40. Down the field he goes at the 20, the 15, the 10. Touchdown Miami. 75 yards on the first play of this football game. You just absolutely love to see it. The timing and location for Tua on the throw to hit him right out of the break, right between a pocket of Niners defenders. We create a bust because of Jalen Waddle's route on the outside. The vision of Sherfield to find that route to the end zone. The blocking, it's a big boon to your offense when you can turn 12-yard throws into 75-yard touchdowns. Not bad, not bad at all. Big plays make the world go round, right? It was one of Tua's six touchdown passes of 40-plus yards this season. Next-gen clock to Trent Sherfield, a top speed of 20.9 miles per hour, and it was the longest catch of his career. And it was the fastest touchdown scored in a Dolphins game and the fastest touchdown to start a game since 2016, the Falcons and Rams. Number nine, a big touchdown on the defensive side of the football. A third down and 19 back at the Texans' 11-yard line. Back to throw, gets it off. He's got oh, Akins. That's going to be a touchdown. The football picked up by the Dolphins. Xavier Howard is it? Walks into the end zone. Touchdown, Miami. Eric Rowe, a splash play waiting to happen this season, leads to another Xavier Howard touchdown. And we talked about the importance of running to the football on the Javon Holland interception earlier this week. For Rowe right here, prime example, because Texans tight end Jordan Akins is held up by a tackle from Cater Kohu. But here comes E. Rowe running to the football with the boom. And man, he had some of the biggest splash plays this year. This one, the Buffalo strip sack. And the play was also helped by immediate pressure from Christian Wilkins winning inside, putting a big hit on the quarterback, forcing a check down immediately on third and 19. And for Xavier Howard, it was his fourth defensive touchdown of his career. That's fifth in Dolphins history behind Jason Taylor, Zach Thomas, Dick Anderson, and Rashad Jones. Play number eight, another fumble return for a touchdown, but this one by a wide receiver. Dolphins with their best possession so far of this football game at their own 42-yard line. Wilson again right up the middle breaks tackling ball comes out Dolphins I think have it it's on the ground Tariq Hill picks it up oh my they gosh he might dead. go he's gonna go to this the 40 the 30 the 20 they didn't blow it dead he came out of the pile with it touchdown Miami how about that crazy play let's see what they do with this Joe was it a live ball or not I don't know everybody was standing around except Tyreek Hill he saw it bounce out picked it up moving on the field is when the ball 
Nobody had control of the ball. Picked up by the offensive player advance for a touchdown. Huh? You got to be kidding me. Huh? Touchdown Dolphins. Tyreek scores in every way imaginable. On a night where the Dolphins, he set the Dolphins single season record for receiving, he scores in another unique way. He now has receiving, rushing, punt return, and fumble recovery touchdowns in his career. It was the 23rd touchdown of 50 plus yards in the career of Tyreek Hill, which was the third most by a player in in NFL history through his first seven NFL seasons. Play number seven, the other wide receiver gets loose. It's way too hot for a penguin just be wandering around out here. Not on Christmas Day. It was cold, and the penguin got loose. A lot of room in the running game on that first drive. Tungavailoa under pressure. Found a hole for Jalen Waddle. Got a block and got free. Waddle with the speed. Takes it inside the 30. Keeps on going. All the way home. Touchdown, Miami. 84-yard lightning strike. Dolphins back in front. All of the superpowers of Tua Tungavailoa on display on this particular throw. Pressure right in his face. Does an extra drop step to buy that extra half second and lofts a perfectly layered ball that allows Waddle to snag it out of the air without breaking stride. And then from there, it was all Jalen Waddle. Top speed of 21.86 miles per hour was the fastest on a receiving touchdown this season. It was the sixth fastest time in general and a great block downfield by Tyreek Hill. Exceptional moves and acceleration from Waddle. It was the fourth longest pass play in team history and the longest completion for the Dolphins since 1986. Play number six is more Waddle showing the taillights. Raheem Mostert is the running back. Wow. They're going for it. Tua. Oh, and then he's got oh first down and a touchdown from Waddle. What a gutsy call. Jalen Waddle. We got the penguin in the end zone too, boy. Is that nice to see? What a call! And what a throw by Tua! It was all of those things as Tua throws a strike to Jalen Waddle for a big touchdown against the New England Patriots and more of that Tua proficiency in moving the defense. There's an underneath conflict linebacker that you can see uh, stay right in his pre-snap alignment as Tua works the front side of the formation. Then he comes backside. By the time he does, the throw comes at the exact same time that his helmet whips back over there. Freezes that player, creates a small window, and he threads it beautifully. Waddle widens the coverage with an outside release to widen that corner. Crosses face, stays on balance, and then you're not going to catch him from behind. Fourth and seven turns into a touchdown. 17-0 for the Dolphins at the break. What a big play that was. And the scoring got started earlier in the day on the defensive side of the football. Devontae Parker in motion. Back to throw. Blitz coming. They got him. The ball's out. Touchdown Miami. Ingram. Picked it up on the bounce then and he got walked blindsided. into the end zone. He never saw it on the blind side. Went to throw the ball. Dolphins were bringing the heat. Number five, Melvin Ingram scores the first points of the season after a field goal for the Miami Dolphins. First touchdown of the year comes on defense after they tied the NFL lead in 2021 with five defensive touchdowns and Brandon Jones forced it. He led all safeties in 2021 with five sacks. The way he disguises his blitzes with late rotation to fool the quarterback is an absolute thing of beauty. Man, I missed it after his injury. And by the late movement, it has the left tackle commit to his block inside, freeing up that edge off the outside for Jones to run as that backside and also come through. And the route he took 
to the quarterback, uh, leaves the running back kind of in, in no man's land as well. Mac Jones hitches up, and Brandon Jones goes right for the football. Ingram scoops it up off the turf one-handed and takes it in. Despite missing nine games, Brandon Jones was still 20th among all safeties with his five quarterback pressures. He was also fourth among safeties in pressure per blitz rate. Number four on the season, we go back to the offensive side of the ball and a touchdown that really sparked a huge Miami comeback. Third down and 15. 14 make it. Edmonds the running back to a back to throw. Plenty of time. Looking end zone. The sticky touchdown. Wow. He went high into the air to pull that down. Potentially my favorite throw of the season because Tua once again moves the defense with his eyes. There's a middle defender right in the middle of the end zone and the route concept is beautiful as the there's a receiver ran right to the hook to pull that middle defender down to the goal line and then Tua shoots it high and that's the rule. Back five of the end zone high, front five of the end zone low and Mike Gesicki shows you the leaping ability to go up and get that. Next Gen had that play with a completion probability of 24.2%. And who could forget that gritty that was born that day from Mike Asicki? Play number three for the Miami Dolphins. Tyreek Hill pitches a no-hitter at the line of scrimmage. And Tua throws a dime to score against the Buffalo Bills. Back to throw. Looking right Cut. side. Wide open. Touchdown, Tyreek Hill. Miami has the lead. Tyreek Hill just runs a takeoff. And Tua puts it right on the money. 20 yards and a oh. touchdown by Tyreek. And when I say no hitter, I'm talking about the release at the line of scrimmage, the ability to get up the stem and then catch the football. Once you stack the defensive back, what a great play by Tyreek Hill. But Tua's ability to process what he's blind to, the backside of the formation, based upon his original read, the front side of the formation, you see Tua's throwing motion begin at the same time that his helmet whips back to the backside. That's how you hold the middle of the field safety, work the Ingold-Sanders combination to that side, then throw it right into the bucket back to the other side of the football field. And again, Tyreek with the great release, first step, stem, catch, perfect all the way. 1.5 yards of separation, 35.4% completion probability for our third best play of the top 10 touchdowns list. Let's go to number two, back home against the Browns and back to Trent Sherfield. Tua, end zone, caught, Trent Sherfield, touchdown! Another just perfectly thrown pass. <laughs> The pass and the feet, it doesn't get any better than that. Weird delay there by the uh, TV man, but we don't have the radio call there, so we go to the TV version. Tua finds Sherfield in the corner of the end zone for a big touchdown against the Browns. Next Gen had this one with a 19.9% completion probability and just 0.9 yards of separation. Tua was in some kind of rhythm on this throw. Rifles one to the back pylon with tons of anticipation. He threw it before Sherfield was even even with the defender, I should say. He even broke it down after the game, talking about quarters, palms, coverage, where the defender squats and drives forward. He saw that squat and defender, knew what he was doing, threw it over his head because he knew he couldn't get back. What a great throw. What a great catch to tap the feet in the corner of the end zone. Two with a Trent Shearfield touchdown. And we're going to finish this off with the historic play to cap off a historic comeback. Touchdown number one this season, Tua beats the Ravens. Chase Edmonds, the running back. Second down and goal from the eight. We've got 19 seconds left. The Dolphins trail by three here in the fourth quarter in Baltimore. Waddle in motion. Hill flanked to the right to a shotgun. Back to throw. Looking, looking, looking. Steps up. Fires. Touchdown. Miami. It's Waddle. Touchdown. 
Oh my gosh, Tua looked around and came back to Waddle. What a throw and catch. With 14 seconds left. Oh, his sixth touchdown sixth pass touchdown of, of the, the day. There's a reason that is the opening intro call on the Drive Time Podcast here. What a day that was. Those are your top 10 Miami Dolphins touchdowns of 2022. And quite frankly, I don't think you're going to find a better top 10 list going back to the 1990s. You know, I've, I'm looking forward to rewatching these games because this year was fun. There was exciting games for the first time up and down the schedule that I can remember as a Dolphins fan. Didn't end the way we wanted it to, but this team is going places. I'm excited about it. Those are your top 10. We have more top 10s coming your way over the next couple of weeks. We'll break those down here on the Drive Time Podcast. We'll also do our exit interview podcast, each position group taking a look at what the team did at those spots, what's available heading forward into the offseason. All of that and a heck of a lot more. From the Baptist Health Studios into the Baptist Health Training Complex, this has been the Drive Time Podcast. You all, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Give me a follow on Twitter at Wingfield NFL. Follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank, our international podcast here in the network. And the post-game show is now a wrap. Check out the YouTube channel for these top 10 videos, media availabilities, drive time, and fish tank content. And last but not least, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up. Caroline and Cameron, daddy's coming home.